everyone. Thanks for joining us again. I'm Catherine Druckman. I'm talking to Doc Searles and Petros Katupis, some familiar names, I hope, to everyone by now. And what we're talking about today is sort of the current state of open source, but also in particular technologies like containers and the relevant pieces, I suppose, to the cloud services that all sort of fit together. But we're talking about how those things affect open source, the open source community and, and how open source ideology is and is no longer relevant in these different um, development communities. So I'll let you guys kind of well, throw I, in I, some thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I'll give a kind of high level non-code developer perspective, which is, um, you know, as in, in wearing my hat is really as a reporter on all this, which I've been doing forever, uh, is that there's a, there's a strong sense that we're pretty far from where open source was and what it was about when the term was first adopted in 1998. So 21 years ago. And, and there was at that time, uh, a kind of, uh, I'll call it a moral imperative, but th th there was a sense of obligation at least that, um, that everybody contributing sort of um, not only had to, you know, a sense of having contributed, but, but was part of a project to improve the world and to improve more than just the way code got developed and as part of the, it was all part of a sharing thing. And, and the way I, here's, here's a metaphor that, and I, this, I may just drift off where I was going with that, but this is, it's sort of like what happened with ride sharing. I mean, the original idea with, with Lyft and Uber was this is ride sharing. I've got a car, I'm going over here. Um, I can take people along um, and, and I can also get paid for it. I suppose the difference would be that uh, with source code, you're not getting paid for it. You might get paid for it, you might not get, get paid for it, but pay was not what it was about. It wasn't about being paid at all. It was sharing. And you shared the code and everybody could use it and it was all cool. And what happened with Uber and Lyft is that they, re they basically replaced, they were, hack on, they were a hack on, on dispatch and they replaced the taxi business with something, frankly, that was a lot better. Um, but it was pretty far from the original purpose, which was ride sharing. Even if it's still called ride sharing, it's not really ride sharing anymore. And I think there's a little sense within the open source world right now that the kind of the equivalent of ride sharing, that we're all sharing this thing and we're all in this kind of thing together and we're doing it for the good of the world has been replaced by something that's much more commercial, much less bound uh, or much less about uh, kind of the original purposes. It's just yet another way to develop code and it's efficient and it does the job. Um, but it's really not as much about doing something for the good of the world. And I feel like it was all over the map on that. Why don't you guys do a better job than I just did? Well, I, so, so you said, you know, getting paid, not getting paid. So Petros and I, we were, we, as we've discussed, we both get paid to contribute to open source projects in various ways. Um, you know, whether it be code or, I mean, 
in fact, we could say that, you know, remember way back when Linux Journal was a thing, <laughs> we got paid yeah, to, to contribute yep. to open source. I mean, whether we were writing code or not, we were contributing to open source. We were, we were elevating people's stories. We were, we were um, t teaching people how to use things. We were highlighting other contributors, which is in itself contribution, right? But, but, but that said, yeah. I, well, an interesting thing here is you were being paid for your labor and not for the code, right? I sure, mean, yeah. And it was, you weren't paid by the line. It wasn't like no. you were working in a factory and you were paid by how many, uh, how many, you know, uh, <laughs> right, pieces exactly. of cloth you produced or, or how many right. uh, uh, hunks of lumber came out at the other end. So, but, but you're, you're, you're paid for your labors because you do a good job. Um, and, and I'm wondering about, and, and you're doing it for open source, but is there any, is there any difference? I mean, any, any difference of kind or quality between doing that for open source, uh, doing that as open source code or doing that as essentially closed source and private code that the world would never see in a, in a shared way. Um, uh, I mean, there are inherent differences, but like, like we we've talked about and not to beat the dead horse, but, um, you know, it, it's different than it was, you know, yeah. 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, in fact, this is something that maybe, you know, maybe we should do next time. Maybe we should take, you know, a poll of our peers and figure out, you know, why people are working the way that they're working. Why, why did they cho choose a job working on an open source project versus a different one? Is it purely just because it was a better, a better position? I mean, maybe well, well, it was. But here's maybe. a question for both of you guys, which is, um, A, uh, are you doing the work you're doing because it's open source or because it's just a good job? And B, um, do you have a, a sense that, um, there is a difference for other people now. In other words, is, is, do you think it matters to other people working around you that this is an open source project and not a closed source project? Well, that's a good uh, question. Yeah. No, yeah. I'll let Petros cause I'm not really <laughs> sure what the answer is. No, you know, I, I will say this. <clears throat> I worked in multiple environments. I mean, when I first got out of um, college, uh, long time ago everything was closed source we developed our own firmware code on closed architecture you know we maintained it internally and as time went on you know we started and, and as open source started to gain momentum uh, the companies that i was working for was starting to adopt these technologies but it was still a closed environment you still developed the you know closed application that ran on top of that and it is it, so now today, yes, I work for a company that is focused on an open source project and nothing but that open source project. But, you know, you ask Doc, do you choose, and you being, you know, anybody in the, uh, you know, development, uh, you know, world, do you choose to work on an open source project implies that there's enough companies out there willing to pay for talent on specific open source projects. And I don't know that that is the case for enough people to have the ability to choose. If that's that a good makes point. Any sense. Yeah. Well, that's, there's a question there, which is what, 
I mean, I'm just guessing. I, I don't know if, if anybody even has a figure on this, but what percentage of, of uh, programming jobs are open source? I would imagine it's pretty high at this stage. At this stage, I would say yes. There's a lot more companies adopting open source technologies and developing you know, applications around open source, but they're not necessarily... I mean, they're just using the open source technology to build their own products. They're not yeah. working actively on open source projects, which are two completely different things. So that's a good, I think, segue yeah. into our original, our original sort of topic, right? Which is this cloud, the cloud ecosystem, let's call it, and all of the service providers and underlying technologies and, and all of these little pieces that fit together that are cogs in this larger you know, cloud technology business model, if you will. We, so we, you know, we've talked about how it, in the past and previous episodes, we've talked about how it was it Richard Stallman that said the cloud is just other people's servers. Yeah. It's a, it clouds other people's computers. Yeah. Yeah. Also so, that you read on shirts nowadays. Right. So, so we've, we've talked about that a lot and how, how maybe because of the segmentation or maybe because of just the, the vast number of moving parts or maybe because of the disconnect, there seems to be an increasing um, departure from emphasis on open source ideology. And I'm wondering, and I'll ask this question of both of you, um, is, it, is it innovation and, and complexity that, that goes with it is that inversely proportional to support for open source ideology or, or can that can those things coexist i i i don't know i'm i'm what i find myself wondering is is there an open source ideology anymore or if oh, there yeah, is one you know um I mean, there must be surely <laughs> yeah i mean i i think i think there is but i think it's 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 likely to be something that's a kind of a a golden rule level thing um, rather than something that's specifically stated. I, I, I know that from the very beginning with the open source initiative, uh, which I was around pretty closely uh, at the time, it was all about licenses. You know, it's all about licenses and, and, and what the different licenses did. And, and the licenses were all about freedom, at least at the GPL level at uh, the sort of sub the bottom substrate level that was about that. But, um, you know, it, but, but, you know, basically freedom and openness, but be, but those are, I wonder if those are now, especially openness, so profoundly practical that it just, it just makes a whole lot more in the same way as it made more sense to just go ahead and produce two by fours than to produce, um, you know, hand hewed hewn logs that, you know, were licensed, exclusively by one supplier. Um, it's sort of like that. It's like, well, we have, you know, the open stuff is easy to make and easy to use and it's all over the place. And we're going to just going to do that because that's the easy thing to do. Um, I think part of the challenge is, you know, uh, the business models of uh, various companies, as I stated earlier, working with open source and working uh, in open source, two completely different things, or I should say, I should, I should rephrase that. We're developing a, on top of open source versus developing open source. Um, you know, when I worked with 
my last employer, we built a, a product. The product was built on top of open source. It was a, a Debian-based distribution. We used Debian packages and a vanilla kernel from uh, kernel.org, but our secret sauce was an application that ran on top of it. It was that secret sauce, that application that made us, that made our product and made, you know, the, the, the actual solution stand out and made it, you know, sellable as opposed to now where, as I stated earlier, you know, I'm working with my current employer on an actual open source project. And I don't know that the ideology is, uh, is, is gone. I think it just depends on where your business model stands as a company. When I, with my last employer, and it's no secret, IBM, we actually had attorneys or lawyers specifically there to ensure that whatever open source packages we pulled into our distribution complied with the licenses and did not conflict with our proprietary code. So it's not that we didn't care about the open source, it's just our product wasn't open source and we only leveraged it as opposed to us developing it, if that makes any sense. Well, well here, here's a question. I mean, this is um, the open source initiative, which I just um, brought up here. Um, and it's, it's about building bridges between open source communities of practice. And, and I'm wondering, I mean, you know, and Catherine, in your case, you're, you work on Drupal. I, and I guess because you're employed there, you feel a sense of community with that. Um, do you think there are com communities in the way there used to be? Are they the same? Oh, I don't know. I'm really biased. I've, I don't feel a part of the Drupal community because of the work that I do. I've always, I mean, I've always been a huge cheerleader for Drupal since I started using it, which was, goes back even before Linux Journal. Um, I think some communities are inherently more cohesive for whatever reason. Some, for some magic recipe <laughs> somehow developed over time that, that made certain communities um, more pleasant than others or more fun than others or more motivating than others. And I don't think, or at least for me personally, I don't think that has anything to do with where I get a paycheck. I think that's just, no matter what I would, what my job is, I would, I would hope that I was working with Drupal just because I mean, that, you know, whatever I'm, a, I'm that person. Um, but I think a lot of open source enthusiasts are like that. I think that, um, Petros, I mean, I'm sure if you, if you did, if you, I, I can't fathom that you would suddenly do some work that was not somehow connected to Linux <laughs> in some way, but if you did, I can't imagine you would somehow disappear, you know, from, from, from the Linux and open source community as a whole, right? I mean, I don't know that anybody nowadays can escape. <laughs> That's a good point. Open source and development. I'm being honest here. But also, what does it mean to be part of a community? Here's something that I was thinking about recently. Um, I, I, there are certain, I would call them trade, trade shows or community events that I really enjoy going to. I haven't had the opportunity to go very often, but 
Um, but I really enjoy it tremendously. And, and whether or not my job specifically relates to it, I would probably go to those things just because, you know, I want to say hi to, you know, people who I have worked with in the past or, you know, former Linux journal writers or something like I, I would go to scale just so I could hang out with Kyle and Bill, <laughs> you know, like, so I don't know. It's, there's a, it's an interesting overlap between work and community when you are working in something uh, open source related. Do you feel that way? Or is this just me? Am I like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I was on mute. <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, but I, I meant actually Petros, but yeah. Yeah. No, go Petros. No, I, I, I understand what you're saying. It's been a while since I've been to any of these shows or conferences, but in terms of community, obviously, depending on your role with your employer, it, it takes on a different, um, it, you know, once upon a time, I remember with our uh, employers or, you know, one of my earlier employers, they were all completely all for us uh, attending these shows. But as, 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 um, as the company matured and as the product matured, and as we started to, and like I said, we still complied with all these licenses, but once things became standard, we slowly backed away from community involvement, which I didn't really enjoy, which I didn't really appreciate, but it's just the way the company was moving. Um, nowadays though, I have no choice, but to, <laughs> because of the current work that I'm doing with, um, with my current employer and being actively involved in an actual open source project, communities, everything, whether you are on these uh, mailing lists, public um, uh, issue trackers and code reviewing uh, uh, platforms to even going to uh, the, the, uh, the conferences. You're surrounded by the same faces, the same people. And, and you know, the, like I said, community means everything. I mean, it obviously takes on a different role, obviously different experience depending on uh, where, you know, the type of product that you are developing. I think so. I think there, camaraderie, I think, is incredibly important to the type of work that goes in to, um, you know, working on and improving uh, open source projects, because you have to be, you know, constantly collaborative, constantly. Well, and it's also nice to get feedback. Yeah. What everybody else is doing, whether, whether it, they are a competitor or not, it doesn't matter. I mean, at the end of the day, to be able to be out there, communicate, and, and, you know, and, and just talk to these people. It's, it goes a long way. Right. So again, back to the, back to the original topic of, of cloud services though. So how has, um, let's say the fragmentation that is a product of, uh, I guess the evolution of that whole service provider landscape, if you will, how has that led like, okay, let me, let me back up a little bit. Um, you know, 20, 25 years ago, you had, you just had a, a few projects, right? And it, it, most people were working with just a few things. Am I, or am I, like a, a technology stack, let's say, had, had a shorter list of, of buzzwords than it does today. If, if, if I, if, I hope I'm not oversimplifying, but, but today, you know, you, 
I'm sure Petros, in your case, you're probably, um, you would identify with a number of different communities. You, you work with, I don't know, Kubernetes is, is, is one. Yes. Well, we use Kubernetes. You, yes. Okay. And, and you don't necessarily contribute. I don't contribute to Kubernetes now, but okay. yeah, I, I, we've, we've used it. We've made use of it and, uh, yeah. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. But uh, <laughs> I can't share too much. I'm sorry. Sure, sure. Well, yeah. regardless, regardless, I'm just saying you, you work with many, many different technologies and different pieces of software and different platforms and all of these things. So I don't know. I, I don't know where I'm going with this. I guess what I'm saying is, is that relevant? Is the, is the fragmentation relevant to the sense of open source community i mean you say fragmentation but i maybe i, I made that up <laughs> i don't necessarily see it that way oh okay you know when when the new buzzword gets thrown out there and and we 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 see one every few months right the mm -hmm. latest and greatest thing first it was cloud computing then it was hybrid computing then it was multi-cloud or edge computing, or, or, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's, there's so many out there, but what I usually see, and this is the, you know, what usually happens is there's a new buzzword, people get excited, and then there are a hundred different open source or closed applications that come to the forefront that claim that they do that one thing. But at the end, there's only one that comes out victorious. You know, we, 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 you mentioned Kubernetes, but before Kubernetes, you know, be, became the most popular one, there were five or six other container orchestration platforms. But now, fast forward to today, nobody know, you know, hears anything about Swarm or Mesos or anything else. They just hear Kubernetes. Yeah. So you say fragmentation and it starts off that way, but eventually comes all back to one. Uh, and, and this is, you know, the same thing happened with OpenStack way back when. And now we have, you know, Kubernetes. I mean, even cloud computing itself, you have, you know, you have Amazon's, uh, you know, AWS. You know, uh, Microsoft has their Azure. IBM has their cloud that nobody hears about. Um, <laughs> uh, that was a dig at IBM. But <laughs> <laughs> That's you know, you, Google has their own cloud. You know, there's like 10,000 different cloud service providers out there. But at the forefront, what do you hear? You just hear AWS and Azure. That's it. So clearly, yeah. it starts off fragmented, but at the end of the day, it all comes back to just one or two. So I don't necessarily see it that way. But, you know, that's, that's, that's just how I interpret it. Okay. Well, I, I thought maybe we might... Um segue a little bit into something that doc was talking about well let me, let me before we do i okay. um maybe we're gonna i'll take this to where you're gonna segue it anyway i want to go back briefly at least to what, what petro said both about what how it, it it's almost inescapable actually to work on open source at this point because there's so much out there and i imagine programmers just have a lot of choices around that um especially since it's all being developed uh, in cyberspace anyway, right? Where you live doesn't matter a whole lot. Um, but, and, and then about community, like to me, like if you in the Drupal community, Catherine and, and, uh, and Petros and the communities you're working with of, of code development, um, 
those are sort of self-contained people in our get become expert in them. They're glad to be in them. And there are, there are communities around that, but then you hear the term, you know, the, the, the fill in the blank community. Um, it, it's, it kind of reminds me of, and I'm involved in one with the identity community, the, mm-hmm. uh, the digital identity community. Cause I, I co-host um, uh, the internet identity workshop, which is going to have its 30th next year. And a number of people in my community there talk about the identity community, but I don't see an identity community at all. I, I see a whole bunch of uh, people working within uh, on their own stuff. You know, there are ones around Microsoft, the ones around Amazon, there are ones that are, um, you know, working on one particular topic or another within, within the sort of general topic of, of digital identity. And, um, a third of the people who show up and we get three, let's say we get 300 every time around, give or take, um, usually a little bit less, but this time is a little bit more, I think. Um, a third of those at least are newbies every time. Uh, and I don't think any of them would say they're part of the identity community, even though we'll talk about it as the identity community. Right. And, um, so I, I just wonder about identity. I mean, about community being kind of thrown around as a very general top topic when there isn't one. I mean, I think it, maybe that's the thing I'm trying to get toward in the beginning, open source as a cause was itself a community. And I think at this point, there are many open source communities, but not one overall community like there was. Yeah, I see where we're okay. No, no, I understand what you're saying in terms of fragmentation. Because yeah, I, it, was yeah. Just, it was just Linux. Yeah. If you were doing something on the internet, fill in the blank, you were making websites, if you were conducting some sort of business, if you were in the sciences, you probably had a Linux server and you probably, you know, had a certain, you know, a limited number of tools to well, work on well, it with. And, and now, now all, all of it's being brought back together. Uh, and this is uh, making fun of, um, uh, a project that uh, I know that many in the open source community uh, have an opinion on, but uh, a lot of these open source projects are coming together thanks to our, uh, our friend uh, Leonard uh, Petering and his System D project. So, <laughs> oh, I thought you were just talking about GitHub. That's interesting. <laughs> no, it's about that one. This, yes. is, this is a dig at System D, but anyway, no, it. it a lot of uh, a lot of these open source projects are coming together and under the roof of a single uh, application that's taking uh, way too much control over uh, the Linux uh, ecosystem. But anyway, I, I digress. That's just well, I'm kind of well. That's interesting because I, I don't because you know what is System D and and what's that all about? Oh, System D is uh, an init uh, process that's become more of an init process. I mean, when I say init, I'm assuming we all know the, the um, init program that pretty much launches all of the services in your uh, Linux distribution during boot time and manages all okay. those services. But anyway, system D has become a, a pretty bloated monster where it does more than just start and manage your services. It, it manages your logging ecosystem. It manages your, yeah, it, it does so many things. I don't even know where to begin. And every single time I, you know, pilot or test drive a a latest release of insert whatever distribution here, 
I always find myself screaming at it because it's mm. pissing me off so much. But anyway, listen, I've had at least two beers in me right now. Somebody crack. And I am later, Catherine. Insert the cracking open a beer sound. Uh, oh my god, that'll be soundtrack. great! I want to hear that. So, this was so, this, this, this is me making fun of me, uh, <laughs> but uh, well, it, it's it's. Uh, I know what you're saying. You know, once once upon a time, there was a single community, but now, yeah, it's just I you don't you don't even know where to begin, and in many cases, one will not communicate with the other if there is any overlap. Yeah, That's an I find point. that just as frustrating. So before we forget, I think that. Doc had a minor digression about GitHub, and I was really curious. Oh no, I actually that is, because that's the way Petros is talking. I thought it was going to go to GitHub because people. Oh. I, I hear people complaining about GitHub because it's so all. I mean, in in the same way as you were saying earlier, Petros about Kubernetes uh, as the, now the kind of the one container uh, system out there that um, there were a lot of places where you could. You you could share code. I mean, you could you could, you know. Um, well, SourceForge was one. SourceForge was a big one, or, or much earlier, and and uh, but but GitHub is it kind of right now. I mean, it's the big one, and it's a big um, one for sure. But a lot of people are, you know, have their uh, own instances of GitLab. Well, you don't you don't have to use it. I mean, well, Git is still there, and you can still do lots of stuff with that. I thought you were gonna say. I thought you were gonna mention the. Um, Oh, the anti-ICE protests there. There's a big thing in, in the open, open source community or in, well, if there is still one uh, open source community to rule them all, um, there's been a lot of controversy about some projects, some entities supporting the nastier parts of our government. Uh, and, um, yeah. Yeah. There's been a lot of that well, going I mean, around. I mean, but. Well, open source could be used for anything. So, of course, yeah. some support that. But exactly. If yeah. you're working on it. Yeah. Okay. But, but you were going to go somewhere, Catherine. So. Oh yes. Well earlier. So I, so we talked about, again, back to the fragmentation idea or, you know, or the, just the original idea of all of these various segments, you know, of, of this again, cloud landscape, because all of this whole conversation basically came out of something that doc emailed us, which we've actually not mentioned at all. Yeah. And that is. Um, four or five topics there. We didn't. Do a yeah. it, that's good. That's the this cloud native computing foundation, and, and we started, you know, we were going over their website and looking at at, at all of these um, entities that are, are part of this ever growing landscape, or so it seems anyway, and and noting which one, which um, pieces, which projects, companies uh, were were using were were open source, and. And I'm just wondering the the question that I wanted to get to was just are there certain are there certain pieces out there that are just that lend themselves to open source and and some that don't I mean is that where we've gone have we come to a point yeah. where we've we've um, we've found that open source works really well for I don't know databases or um, automation. And we thought, well, maybe it doesn't work so well for, oh gosh, I don't even know. Um, continuous integration. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or, you know, insert buzzword here. 
Yeah. Are, are there certain, I mean, is that, is that part of it maybe? Well, or it, are there just, is well, there so, more room for closed source in certain areas? Well, there's, I, I'm sure there is. And, and, but I, just to uh, go back to where this came up, uh, at least for me, um, uh, I, I, I went to the, uh, uh, I don't even remember what it was called, but it was put on by the Linux Foundation um, earlier this year, and I wrote about it in Linux Journal. Um, and I, and it was, it, was about, it was about cloud native, basically. But I, I didn't realize until I got there that it was really about 5G and, and 5G development and, uh, and kind of, you know, it was a lot of, planets and moons uh, flying around the, what the, what the big telcos are going to do with 5g. And, and they have this thing called the cloud native uh, interactive landscape and um, listeners can, it's a short URL. It's landscape.cncf.io. That's landscape.cloudnativeinteractivelandscape, I guess, uh, computing foundation, cncf.io. And, and it's, and it's this vast thing. You need a really big screen to look at it. I'm looking at it right now on a laptop and I can't see the whole thing. And it has open source and closed source um, tiles within it, little chiclets um, in categories like, you know, app distribution and development. And within that are database streaming and messaging application def definition and image blend, continuous integration and delivery. Um, and within each of those, about half of them are, are logos on a white tile and about half of them are logos on a gray tile and the white tiles are all open source um, and the gray tiles are not. And, and if there's, there's a filter on the left, one of which is open source landscape. Um, and if you click on that, all the gray tiles drop out. And when the gray tiles drop out, for example, all of Kubernetes certified service providers disappear. All Kubernetes training partners disappear. And about half, most certified Kubernetes hosted disappear and most certified Kubernetes distribution also disappear. I think more of them disappear than did when I first looked at this a few months ago. And, and some of this I can see because a service provider at, at the level that service is provisioned is generally not open source. Um, but I really don't know, you know, beneath that, I, I don't know exactly how to interpret this, except that um, it's a landscape and not a community. <laughs> I guess that's one way to look at it, which is, this is a picture of stuff that's happening and uh, it's issued by an organization within the Linux Foundation, which is itself pretty dedicated to open source, but it's it's very much an organization that deals in reality. And, and in reality, um, uh, companies have their self-interests and they have their, um, and a lot of those, most of them in fact are closed in, you know, for lots of good, good reasons. Um, you know, security being one of them, you don't want other people to look at what we're doing with money or how we're charging people or how we keep track of, you know, what's in our namespaces, uh, and all of that. But, um, uh, but I, I have a selfish interest in this as well, in that one of the residual benefits of having written for a Linux Journal is that I will be going to the next one of these things. It's not CNCF again, it's something else, 
It's in San Diego. It's next month. But I'll be seeing some of the same people, and I'll be having some of the same questions. And I'll be reporting it somewhere, not Linux Journal, because that's dead, but um, perhaps somehow. here. <laughs> but here, for certainly here, certainly here. And it might even be interesting to set up something there, you know, where I'm interviewing people and so forth. That, that'll be interesting. You know, so, this landscape um, chart kind of bothers me. In mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, you have a lot of companies that are essentially claiming, I shouldn't say claiming, paying money, becoming members, just so that their names and logos show up here. And in some cases, I don't know that they do anything cloud native specific, aside from the fact that their services can be leveraged in a cloud native environment. You know, for instance, if you go under runtime and under cloud native storage, you have vendors such as NetApp in pure storage. I mean, these are great companies. I'm not knocking mm -hmm. the companies themselves, but at the same time, it's just data storage. They will, you know, expose a piece of storage to a server and that server will have access to that storage in a cloud native computing environment. You know, you'll have containers accessing it containers running in specific applications that are orchestrated via Kubernetes. Maybe that application is going to be MongoDB. It doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, I mean, this, this landscape, closed source, open source, it's just, I don't know. I have a problem with it primarily because anybody never, I mean, I could, I could create a company right now, pay my mm -hmm. fair share of money and then my logo will get thrown out up there. I don't know that it, there's any value. Yeah. So, so, so I'm, I'm looking at a couple of these. So I'm, I'm, you mentioned cloud native storage. So there's one here that's in white. It's Longhorn Rancher Labs, uh, cloud native distributed block storage built on and for Kubernetes. The repositories in GitHub. I notice when I'm looking around these that the ones that are called open source all have a repository in GitHub. Um, next to it is one uh, called Kasten runtime cloud native storage, and it doesn't have a repository at all, <laughs> right? Um, and I guess they, you know, I, I'm not sure if there's a difference in kind between either of those really, and that's maybe part of it. Here's OpenSDS, um, first commit three years ago, latest release four months ago, but they're on GitHub, and they have 405 little stars. I don't know what that means, but, um, but I, I, I get the sense that what, the, and I know for a fact what the Linux Foundation is, is trying to do is draw a giant circle around all of these and encourage companies to be as open as possible within it and to kind of, you know, call it a landscape and not a community. But, but I think you're right that, you know, you can, I mean, you could, you could throw something up there and, you know, you've got a repository in GitHub and you're qualified. Um, and there it is. Uh, anyway, yeah. I just find it kind of interesting that, you know, these things are divided into their respective categories and it just, it's interesting to me that some of them like cloud native storage, whatever that even means, <laughs> are I mean, mostly storage. great. It's just storage. Exactly. <laughs> that, that way, the way, as I said that out loud, I, I was thinking of you, Petros, because you're like, it's just a buzzword. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is there any difference between a, let's look at, here's a metaphor. But then um, automating, uh, sorry, automation and configuration is another example where almost everything is 
white. It's what open source. So I don't know. I just wonder, like, okay, but uh, go. Maybe that's a no, there's, there's correlation. One gray. There's one gray, and it's the obvious VMware. Well, yeah. Yeah, so I'm thinking, you know, and, and this kind of gets to the sort of the community point a little bit, maybe. Uh, if you think about storage in uh, of physical things, you know, those the you know the 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 storage facilities where you can where you you basically outsource your basement, right? You bring your all your extra boxes or you're moving and you stick it all in a storage facility. Does it really matter whether uh, that storage facility is open source in the sense that they built the entire thing out of um, uh, open source lumber, meaning there's nothing proprietary in the lumber or in the metal or any of the pieces that are used in making the damn thing, or if it's all, say, prefab and it came from a closed source um, fabricator of storage units. Does it make any difference? No. It doesn't, really. And um, because you really don't care. I mean, it, as, a, as a user of it or as a customer of it, you don't care. Uh, I mean, in a similar way, I mean, if, if you just look at... Uh, AWS or Azure at this point, because Microsoft is now bragging on being a Linux company and, and they're, I think, maybe even the largest contributor or the largest in terms of money contributed to the Linux Foundation. Um, you know, that, that Amazon and Azure may be running on Linux um, is, is kind of immaterial in this. I mean, you, you may be running a, yourself running a Linux instance on it but whether or not the back end of that is closed or open, does it matter a whole lot? I mean, um, the first cloud storage I know of was an IBM Z series mainframes, which are not open. Um, uh, it, but that's, you know, uh, it almost didn't matter. Right. Uh, uh, and I, I mean, you know, Petros, you helped me set up uh, my Searles.com server on, on one of the many, hosting services and I don't know what they're running. It doesn't oh, they're matter. running, they're running Linux. It's yeah, just, I'm sure they are, but well, I mean, you have the, you have the choice. Uh, and, and it doesn't matter because, you know, to, to, to an end user such as you or I, you don't have that exposure, but at the end of the day, I know a lot of providers, including the one that, that Cyrils.com is running on, they give you a choice. Do you want it on a mm. backed one or on a Linux backed one? And at the end of the day, does it matter? because of what is exposed to you, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, don't think it, I don't think it does. So I guess, you know, one of the questions I'll have for the Linux Foundation is, other than trying to get the 5G world to be coherent, which I think is what they're doing. I mean, they're, they're making sure that uh, the many contributors of code to 5G projects of one kind or another are not duplicating each other's efforts and are working together on stuff. Um, and I think the cloud native stuff is only part of that. Um, although the story that I get from the people I know who are cynical about 5G will tell you or have told me anyway, that the whole 5G purpose has nothing to do with, with gaming or latent or low latency or high throughput or, any of that, it all has to do with competing with Amazon and, and, uh, and Microsoft by setting up their own clouds as close to, as close to the edge as possible. In other words, they want to, they want to get into Amazon, the AWS and Azure business. And that's what this is about. It, it gets the telcos of the, 
into the Amazon and Azure business in in cloud native storage that's relatively close to where the where the customers are. And we'll see, I suppose. I mean, that's an interesting question, uh, whether that's what it's about or not. So, but I'll but I'll I'll, I'll have some questions for them about that. I'm I'm really curious what you know what's what's the sort of if there is a community side to this, what is the community other than a whole bunch of developers working on a giant new business opportunity? And maybe that's enough. Maybe that's just cool enough. That's you know, that's the market at work, and you know, that's what it is. No, I, I really don't have anything to respond to that with. But I did want to circle back to the shit pile that is system D, you know, (laughs) I don't know why it tries to mount and remote NFS share before it brings up the goddamn network. In what world does that make sense? Tell me, I don't know. (laughs) Me venting again. I'm sorry. I don't know anything really about system D, but there's a criticism section that says the design of system D has ignited controversy within the free software community, not the open source community, the free software one, which I think is more of a community. Um, critics regard system D as overly complex and suffering from continued feature creep, arguing that its architecture violates the Unix, Unix philosophy. Also concerned that it forms a system of interlocked dependencies, thereby giving distribution maintainers little choice, but to adopt system D as more user space software comes to depend on its components. So think of Unix philosophy. You write one utility that does one thing really well. Mm. Think about it. LS, CP. I mean, it does one thing really. Yeah. System D that tries to do a hundred million different things. Right. When you bloat one, one piece of the puzzle, the whole puzzle kind of falls apart basically. (sighs) Yeah. Anyway, no, it just, pisses me off because, you know, I, it's twice now. I, so I set up a, a print server here with the Raspberry Pi. And uh, the Raspberry Pi r- runs uh, Raspbian. And Raspbian, sadly, uses System D. Mm-hmm. And it just, it aggravates me every single time something goes wrong and it's hidden behind this one application. You know, if I want this, if I want to, like, like I mentioned earlier, if I want to mount an NFS share, a remote NFS share at boot time, it tries to mount, regardless of how I configure my FS tab, I can tell it that it's a networking device. But for whatever reason, it still tries to mount it before the network service is up. How, that doesn't make any sense. And what you're saying is because so many eggs are in one basket, you have limited control over yeah. changing it, and that frustrates you. Is that what you're saying? It's limited with how you can muck with it, how you can tune it, how you can change it. You know, at least in it was mm-hmm. pretty straightforward and simple. Eh, you know, yeah. Well, so, I mean, this is maybe, maybe yeah. I'm getting too old for this. No, I think no, no. Software I, simple is. I think it's simple. And I think there's a way to loop in this back uh, to something. Um, I'm, I'm looking now at Unix philosophy, and which I kind of knew intuitively. Um, but there's a, a couple of things that in this composability is one, as opposed to monolithic design. So I think what you're saying there in a way is that rather than doing one thing well and pulling together a number of things that do one thing well and composing them, on your own as a somebody implementing this, 
it's monolithic. It's all singing, exactly. all dancing. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're starting to see this trend, at least underneath the hood, with Linux distributions, where the kernel stands apart. And now the utilities that you and I have been using for the better part of the last, you know, couple, few decades in Unix-like environments are all going underneath one monolithic application. And mm. not only does it go against the Unix philosophy, it just complicates things it, when it, it comes to maintaining, yeah. troubleshooting, debugging, you know, what have you. Gone are the days where it's like, just push this to, you know, the uh, util Linux project, right? Go push this to bin utils project, or it doesn't even matter. Now it's just one, I don't know, maybe some people like that, but I, for one, I'm not part well, of that. Well, there's, there's, okay, so is Kubernetes an example of, of monolithic thinking rather than composability? In other words, it's, it's pre-composed and is therefore monolithic. I don't know that I would describe it as monolithic. I mean, all, it does, it's designed and written to schedule and orchestrate mm -hmm. containers. Yeah. So it does what it's supposed it does, to do. It does that in a clustered ecosystem. Yeah. So, I mean, there are various components that end up making up Kubernetes, but at the end of the day, it's designed to do one thing. Now people are adding, our people are developing modules for it to, to create more functionality in Kubernetes, for instance. Uh, there's this, uh, project that I stumbled on called, what was it called? Kubevert, which was a Kubernetes module that starts, that works with VMs as well, like KVM, like type VMs. So it just didn't orchestrate uh, work with containers. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's, it's extending itself to cover a lot more. Now, does that you know, dip into the monolithic uh, side of things. Maybe not yet, but I wouldn't call it monolithic. Yeah. Now, if it took over the storage underneath it and added the databases on top of it or what have you, then we're talking about what system D is doing type of monolithic where it controlled every aspect of the container ecosystem or the cloud native ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see that with Kubernetes. So on in the um, Unix philosophy article in, in Wikipedia, it's interesting that they're, they've, they bring it out to a number of areas, you know, that um, Doug McElroy on, on, one thing, Mike Jen Carr's on another, but all of them have this simplicity and modularity to them. You know, uh, Eric Raymond's 17 rules, you know, which has used composition, write simple programs, write small programs, write readable programs, write modular programs. And, uh, you know, another one, small is beautiful, make each program do one thing well. Yeah. Um, Love it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Simplicity is so undervalued. 
Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's tremendously valued. I don't know. <laughs> I think now, now here's a valued in software. In, under criticism in a 1981 article titled the, the Truth About Unix User Interface is Horrid, um, that was there <laughs> in 1981 by not Don Norman, uh, who's not only a, a friend, but I just saw him two days ago. <laughs> and uh, he's in his mid-80s now, and he's still, still, he's got a design lab at UC uh, uh, San Diego. Um, he's the guy who wrote um, The Design of Everyday Things and Things That Make Us Smart and stuff like that. Um, he's actually a cognitive scientist and he's really great. And um, I don't know, I'll have to ask him when I see him next, uh, if he still feels the same way about that. I don't, I don't think user, Unix is supposed to have a user interface, really. I mean, I think <laughs> probably at, at that stage, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, what's the user interface for an internal combustion engine? Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's sort of what Apple's done, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, and then what is exposed to the end user, whether you're running a, a MacBook or an iOS or anything else. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and you can open a shell and do something on it. And there it is. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. You might, you might include it to that In one. In Apple's case, why did they strip WGET out of their uh, Unix utilities? I don't get that. No, I didn't know they did. Huh. I'm just waiting for Catherine to chime in, but maybe she's got problems with her mute button. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm okay. No, wait, I, I didn't know that. The, what do you mean? W? Wait, what? <laughs> w get the uh, utility. I have to do a homebrew install just to get W get on my platform. So I can pull off files from the command. You know line what? It's probably that. been so long since I, homebrew installed wget on a mac that i forgot about that but yeah you're right yeah I, they, I did they took free bsd like the free bsd base and just like further stripped it down mm. you know what I, I wonder if they did it in order to fit on a phone no i mean that's no, it should have been long ago yeah they've done it on the macbook a long time ago mm. Hmm. Mm. yes hmm on to beer number three, guys. Yeah. Okay. On well, on that three. note, I think I'll find a nice editing is, spot. I think there's one in there the, somewhere. The, the two, the, the two beer, the, the two beer podcast. Oh, yeah. I like it. The 